Hey, everyone. Before you start this episode, and we are very excited to share it with you, please do us a massive favor. Go to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. And if you are watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe to the channel. We really appreciate all the support. And that really helps us a ton when you leave a review or make sure you are subscribed and like the video. Uh, we also have a massive announcement that we are super excited to share with you. We have online merchandise coming. By the time this episode is out, the store will be live. The link is in the description to this video or podcast description on your favorite platform. Please check out the store. We've made almost 20 different designs between shirts and hoodies. We're planning more stuff for the future, um, but we wanted to get this up and running so that you can support us while also getting some amazing merchandise to sport that dad gear in your life and uh, also get some great presents for the dads in your life for Christmas upcoming. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for all the support. We're really excited to share it with you. And without further ado, into the episode. Let's get climbing that mountain. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Hello and welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. Our guest today is Wayne Boatwright. Wayne is an Ivy League attorney, a startup techie, and someone who also served six years in prison. Uh, he's a father to two children, and tonight we're going to hear his story. So, Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. George Brandon, good to meet you. Likewise. So, Wayne, uh, let's just start from the top. Uh, you know, you obviously went to school to become a lawyer. How, you know, where'd you grow up? What was your, your childhood like? And, you know, That's how did, a how great did that way to start. To be a lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm a fifth generation Californian. So you guys back there different worldview, right? My family came out in the 1850s. Um, and, and I mentioned this because I think a structural element for family is to have your family traditions and your family history center into what you educate your children with. My family, uh, on my mother's side, were French Huguenots who uh, came to the United States, came to the Americas in the 1650s. And uh, on my... Uh, father's side, uh, Scots-Irish, English, German, you know, I've got that mix. But that French Huguenot group that came over in the 1650s still resonates with me. Very similar to the Puritan mindset, which is uh, neither a lender nor a borrower be, take care of yourself, um, be respectful of others, uh, don't be proudful, don't brag. Um, but I got some of that Scots-Irish sauce in me as well, which is more of the drinking side and the, the argumentative side. So, so I, I actually, I am the classic American meritocracy success story. Uh, I was raised by a single mother who didn't have a college education, uh, myself and my uh, half brother, who was 13 months older than me, um, lived in rent control housing and with government aid my whole life, shared my bedroom with my brother my whole life, but always felt I could be more. Um, it sounds like faith is an important uh, foundational element of, of your lives. I found myself very lucky to be very involved uh, in, in a church when I was young, and that gave me the structure that made sure I didn't end up as many kids 
in my neighborhood did as a criminal um, are doing just the wrong things at the wrong time. So I was raised, uh, my family wasn't much into faith, but I got into it. And that gave me the structure to actually um, get my life together. I, I served um, a mission in, in, um, in Argentina for two years. Um, didn't start college till I was basically 21. Um, started at a junior college and went to um, Cal State Northridge and, and, and uh, BYU for two years and then realized to go to the places I wanted to go. That's why I went to BYU. I found it gave me a better chance to get into good law schools. And I, I went to Cornell Law School. And so, I, and I was totally out of my depth. Um, I had no family that were professionals. Um, I had no friends that were on a similar track. I, I didn't go to a, a nice liberal arts college and have the sophistication that many of my uh, peers did. Um, and I didn't care at all. I was learning so much. It was such a great opportunity. And I, uh, Cornell's very much, uh, a, as an Ivy League school, very much in the theory. And so when I've listened to some of the podcasts that, that you've done on the, the Present Fathers podcast and, and the goals you have, there's a lot more tactical rubber meets the road. How do you deal with stuff? I'm more of a theorist. And so a lot of the stuff that I like to talk about is, is more at that level. Um, and, and so that may come out or it may not, but, but that allowed me to actually have a fascinating life. So I've lived many different lives. So I had that life, the poor life, my life as a, a regular lawyer, which had me, I, I was set to go to DC and work at a, you know, a DC law firm and my family were having real problems, my mother and brother. So I, I realized that I had to go back to LA to help them out. So I took a job with an LA law firm. And after I got them settled and, uh, got their, them back on track, I got into international law, which had always been my passion. So I went to Korea for six years. And so when I talk about the ability to understand different cultures and how to interact and to recognize that cultural level of communication, I come from experience. I had two years in Argentina. I'm a California boy that went to New York for law school. And I spent six years in Korea. And oh, by the way, I spent six years in prison. And San Quentin is a, a pretty an infamous prison in California. It's one of the oldest ones that, that's been around. And I, and it's a prison full of um, people who committed the most heinous crimes there are. Um, uh, death row, California's death yeah. row, all of California's death rows at San Quentin, for example. Wow. Um, now I went to San Quentin, not because of the seriousness of my crime, and it was serious, and we'll talk about that in a second, but because it was the closest prison to my family. So I had it as a goal before I went to prison that I had to stay in my children's lives. There are 30 prisons in the California system. I could have gone anywhere in California, but I did. I pulled all the strings I knew how to pull as a professional to make sure I got sent to San Quentin, regardless of it being uh, a level two prison, yeah. not a level one prison, which is where I could have gone to. So, so I, I know I covered a lot of stuff quickly there, but I wanted to give you some aspect of that career. The final aspect is I had that lawyer part and then I had the startup techie part before the crime part. So I, I worked with a lot of uh, startup companies in Silicon Valley uh, to help them launch their businesses and to advise them both as a lawyer and as a businessman uh, on how to do that. So I have a lot of the consulting tech and, and vocabulary that I developed both at Accenture where I went for two years and had a okay. global position as well as the work I did with startups. 
Very good. Well, appreciate you. So there's you. the foundation before the crime, right? Yeah. So I appreciate you walking over that uh, so quickly. Um, can we, what, you know, when did you get married and when did you have your kids? And, you know, um, so, you know, how, how many years were you there as their dad before you had to go to prison? Um, yeah, I, uh, I got married in 1998 um, and I, I took marriage seriously. Uh, so much so that I proposed at the handover of Hong Kong from England to the the PRC to China in 1997. So I had our a bunch of our friends flew in. I went to a friend had a a penthouse in the mid levels, and after they celebrated the handover, I had them get everybody off the deck so I could propose because I didn't want to do it again. Uh, the goal was to have that marriage be everything, and I chose. Uh, uh, my wife and I try not to use names just to respect people's positions. So I'll use a title. Um, wonderful woman. And, and I knew she would be a wonderful mother. And that was important to me because I wanted to be a father. I was raised in a single parent household, never had, um, I had a father sized hole in my psyche. Now I was lucky that I filled a lot of that hole with faith and religion. Um, and the Boy Scouts, for example, and playing on the football team, for example, having a coach, having a scoutmaster, having religious leaders. Um, so I was lucky in that way. But I, I, I still had that father-sized hole, and I, I knew that I didn't want my children um, to be raised without a father. Um, so, so we got married in 98, our first child was born in 2004, our second in 2006, because we decided we wanted to have some time together as a married couple before we had kids because you run around like crazy. I think one of your other co-hosts just had a baby, right? I remember that. Yep. You don't see, I thought I knew how to drink coffee. I didn't know anything about coffee till I had kids and I knew I had to take serious caffeine to deal with that. So, so that, that was the foundation of, uh, of my life. I was a Sunday school teacher at uh, Calvary Presbyterian Church in San Francisco. I was a deacon of my church. Even today, I, um, I do a weekly men's Bible study on Monday mornings. So uh, we have one today. For example, this is Monday when we're, we're recording this. And I, also belong, I also belong to another organization called New Canaan Society, which is an organization of, uh, of businessmen of faith. Uh, that gets together. And we meet twice a month, small group, uh, four of us get together and talk about our lives and, and work together um, as a group. And I, and I commend anybody who can find a group to be a member of, I think it's essential uh, for your role as a, as a yes. man and as a father, because you're able to condense everything at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, one member of our group has had two children since we've been meeting. Another member left his job and started his own business and got married since we've been together. And so to talk about the guy who's got a business, how does he fire somebody, right? How does he deal with a second child rather than just the first? Um, all of the, the challenges that we can face as men, we can, we can be much more vulnerable and open with when it's a men's group, to be frank, and, and not a, a co-ed group. I think men tend to try to show off or hide too much when it's co-ed. It's just instinctual. You can't stop yourself. So it's good to have a men's group. So I still use that format um, and those organizations as uh, a way of service um, because I think that's 
uh, a central part of our existence or should be. You have to be self-aware, gain self-awareness. You have to express yourself creatively in some way and then service to help others along that path, whether they be your children or your community. Um, uh, that's a skill that we all need to develop and it's where we learn the most when we mm -hmm. get into service. Absolutely. Now let's, let's obviously get into, let's get into the crime and what happened and what was your low point throughout the situation through the journey and how did it change your priorities and even your ambitions as a father? Let's, let's get into that. Yeah. Um, uh, I mentioned, uh, some of the good sides of my heritage, right? That carry your own water, uh, take care of your own self. The bad side of it is that it, it engenders a sense of pride that you can do it on your own. Um, and, and that pride is actually a defense mechanism um, uh, that you use. It's, it's misconstrued as an action, it's a reaction. Um, and so as I was facing challenges, uh, professionally and, and personally, um, for example, six months before my, my crime, my mother, uh, fell down and, and broke her hip. And so we had to get her in hospice. And so I was traveling to LA, uh, about once a month from San Francisco. It's a long drive, um, to deal with trying to get my mother and my brother who has special needs into the same facility because they were codependent and they, they needed to continue to live together. And that wasn't a guarantee. It was very difficult to do that. And because I was a proud man, I didn't ask for help when I should have, not even from my wife when I should have. And what did I do? I coped. My coping mechanism was to turn to alcohol and I was already drinking too much. But, uh, during those six months, I started drinking alone and daily. Um, and use alcohol. Again, alcohol isn't the problem. Alcoholism isn't the problem. It's a coping mechanism. You have to be able to face the underlying problem or you'll go back to alcohol, which is why so many people fail in their elements of sobriety, I believe. Um, but of course, I didn't know that at the time. And I was too proud to ask for help and so proud that I thought I could drive drunk on the night of my crime. And my crime was drunk driving. So I killed someone. I I was so drunk that by the time I got into the to the accident, I was going the wrong way on the five freeway and had a head on collision um, and took a life. The low point. Um, it, it's not a it's not a bell curve. There's a couple loops in my case. Um, uh, regaining consciousness in a hospital after being medevaced to a hospital and having two highway patrolmen there to explain to you that I had taken a life. I had been in a car accident and I killed someone. Um, um, I can't explain to you, to people who haven't gone through a similar uh, crisis, uh, what that feels like. Trust me. Um, you don't want to go through it. Uh, if you can learn from other people's experiences and gain insight and develop the, the habits and the tools to avoid um, using any form of substance as a coping mechanism, please, uh, I'm happy to help if, 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 if asked. I'm happy to give you the idea of the tools that have worked for me that I've learned 
through hard experience and mainly in prison, um, how to deal with those things. Why, what were the triggers? What was the trauma that had me develop the defense mechanism? Uh, pride that then went into a coping mechanism of alcohol when my defense mechanism wasn't working perfectly that led to addiction and led to my crime. Um, but there was a second low point. Um, I had mentioned I thought I was married for life and I was a father of two children. They were five and seven when I committed my crime. Um, being a man of, of, of means, I was able to be on um, probation. So, right, I was able to get out of, I didn't go to prison until I turned myself in after my sentencing uh, and, and crime. So I was able to be with my children for a full year before I went to prison. So they were six and eight uh, when I went to prison. But that year wasn't a full year. I had 90 days in a hospital. Um, I had fractured my pelvis, uh, shattered my foot, broken my neck, ribs, concussion, all the stuff you'd expect from a head-on collision on the freeway. Uh, I got a plate and eight screws in my foot, for example, um, that they had to reconstruct. So I had 90 days in a hospital, and then I was in a wheelchair, a walker, crutches, uh, um, before I was able to actually spend much time with my children again uh, as young children before I, and I, I took what's called a plea bargain. If you know anything about the legal system, um, literally 98, 99% of cases are decided by plea bargain. Uh, and, and I didn't want to waste the state's time or money. I had committed my crime. I knew it. I wanted to serve sentence. That's what the state demanded of me. And, and I knew that. And, and that was important for me to just stay alive. But while serving sentence about, about four months, five months into my sentence, my wife said she wanted to visit me alone in, in San Quentin. And I was at San Quentin state prison because it was the closest prison uh, to my family. And I wanted to make sure I could be close to them. Um, and so I worked and wrangled the, the levers of power to make sure I was sentenced to San Quentin. She said she wanted to visit me alone and she came and she told me she wanted to visit me alone because she wanted a divorce. Um, uh, there is nothing when that last support you have to your identity and yourself is taken away. Um, that's a low point. Uh, I, I almost got myself shot that day um, because I was in such a distraught state that um, I, I, when I was finished, and luckily I had mental health help, which is, again, something I recommend that people do. I was lucky to have that opportunity in California and taking advantage of it, that I was so distraught um, that I was walking in an area you're not allowed to be in. Um, and they can shoot you for that if they want to. Luckily, they just called me back. Um, that was, so those are the two lowest points um, that I've ever gone through. I like to, to just, uh, we have to use metaphor to, to bring concept into understanding for other people. So for me, I built this psychic delusion house that I lived in. It was built by my education, by my faith, by my experience, by my the view of myself, um, a lot of people call it a mask. I call it a delusion house. I think it's more substantive than a mask. And I had burned down. 
that psychic delusion of health, both with my crime and destroying my mem- my marriage. For in reality, my crime destroyed two families, uh, the family of my victim and my own. Um, and I had to face that. Uh, and that's not an easy, uh, that's not an easy thing to look at about yourself. Definitely not. So, uh, well, one, thank you for just being so candid, uh, and honest about your experience. Um, I think it takes a great deal of courage to come here and to, uh, share your story honestly and to own it the way that you have. And, uh, you know, regardless of anyone's faults, uh, that's how you start the path to restoration is to admit it and to own it and, and to start back on the path to to restoration. So you said you hit these low points, basically right at the start. What did you do? How did you stay sane, really? Um, yes. After such, yes. you know, because it's such a rapid thing too. Right? Obviously, you didn't desire to do what you did. Right. So it's not like you woke up one day and decided you're just going to be a bad person. It happened and it's something you had to live with. And then now you're getting divorced. Um, I can only imagine the state that you were in. So to hear that you were distraught and could have been shot by the guards, I'm not surprised. Um, what were the things that saved you then? Because it's not like you could just go wherever you wanted to. Um, the, the reason I'm on your podcast, um, being a father was the thing that saved me. My children saved me. Um, and not because I was sure my, their mother had always said I was a great father. You know, I might've had other issues, but I was a great father. Um, uh, and I had never seen a father in the home. So I wasn't sure what a great father was, but I was trying my best. Um, uh, uh, I, for example, my son was young and he was a big baseball fan. We're, we're a big Giants fan. And so when I was physically able, um, I would take him to Giants games. Uh, but that isn't what it was about. We would go two hours early to go to batting practice and he'd bring his mitt. And we'd stand, you know, in, in the bleachers where they would hit balls. And he, he must have a dozen balls that he got from batting practice. We shared that those moments together. We shared that time, uh, just father and son, one-on-one bonding um, before I went to prison, but after my crime. Um, explaining to your children that daddy's going to go away as my sentence approached um, and what that meant to, again, children who were six and eight. They didn't understand these concepts. I was their dad, for heaven's sakes. How could I do something so evil right um and they're both still uh that trauma has impacted their lives um and i i knew that if i were to take the easy way um i'd lived overseas a long time i could have skipped out no problem you know, I could have just decided I was going to go live on a beach in Thailand. Nobody would have caught me. I'm, I knew how to do that. Or the other easy way, which is to take that, you know, full bottle of, of morphine that they gave me before I went to prison. And 
I can't say it wasn't tempting. You know, I had a a long $2 million policy and a short $750,000 policy that would both pay out even if I committed suicide because I've gotten them so long ago. And, you know, you can't think that that money wouldn't have helped your family. My civil settlement with my victim's family is $1.55 million. Uh, some of that insurance, some of it not. And, you know, that's a big financial hit. It, it sucked us dry. My kids had to, they had their both, each had their own bedroom when I committed my crime. When I went to prison, even though they were a boy and a girl, they had to get bunk beds and sleep in the same bedroom. We had to downsize pretty majorly. Um, and so I was tempted uh, by providing that money for my family. Um, and I can't say it was my own worth that made me want to stay around. It was the realization that if I did that, my children would think it would be an acceptable path in their own lives. Because you never know what you're going to face going forward. And I couldn't risk um, that. They were too wonderful, too beautiful, too amazing for me to risk being that type of bad example for them. Because unfortunately, when you're that young, they think it's all about them, right? They can't help that. They're kids. They would think I took my life not for them, but because of them. Um, trying to explain to my daughter that I wasn't leaving her because um, my wife had told her uh, that I was depressed and that's why I drank a lot. And so I had to explain to her that I wasn't depressed about our family life. It was other th things that I was dealing with because I loved her and I loved her brother and I loved their mother um, and I cherished my life. So uh, that's what gave me the strength to uh, get back up, um, uh, embrace the suck, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and recognize that I had a lot of blind spots that had led me to that point. And so I right. needed to develop the psychic tools and, and the ability to communicate with others to identify those blind spots and, and correct for them. Uh, so they wouldn't keep uh, tripping me up going forward. So, um, you know, I've been home over four years. Uh, I've had 27 jobs since I've been home. Uh, you're disbarred uh, by the bar, so I can't practice law. Um, my former community hasn't uh, found a way to accept me back. You know, they're the, the urban educated atheist elite. Uh, they've never failed at anything in their lives. They don't know how to bring back a person who's right. failed the way I have. I yeah. don't blame them for that. Um, they still love me. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to go to a friend's house. She has me coming over to cat sit for a week as she's gone away on a trip. Um, she trusts me implicitly. Uh, happy to invite me over to, to take her house. Doesn't worry about it at all. But she won't invite me to her birthday party. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the consequences that's probably underappreciated when you come home. So one of my first jobs was working at a fine dining high-end restaurant with a celebrity chef. It had two bars. That never tempted me. Um, I One of the jobs I work at now is at a catering company. There's alcohol all day, all night long, if you want it, for free. Nobody will see you. I, I've dismantled that trigger, as I say it, that that I think many people who get into it, uh, try to deal with addiction and get into rehab, they're building a wall around their trigger so they won't trigger it. But that 
you can always find a way around that. You've got to you've got to find out what that coping mechanism, why you develop that coping mechanism of addiction, and dismantle that trigger so that it's not a temptation anymore. You don't need yeah. it anymore. And I think I've been able to do that uh, effectively, evidenced by the fact that I've been back over four years and I haven't had a uh, an issue or a relapse. That doesn't mean you don't still consider yourself an addict. And I don't right. realize the risk that I would happen to me if I ever were to drink again. Of course I do. Um, but I'm not worried about it. Yeah. So backstage, you talked about how you really dove into philosophy. Um, did you discover and kind of really do this work that you're describing about understanding why you had had a problem with alcohol and why that was the thing that you were using to cope with and was it a, a journey of self-discovery or was it also like where there i don't know if there was like counseling sessions but what was that process like to one break addiction and then i'd like to after we talk about the addiction piece get into how you maintained and restored relationships um with your children sure sure um uh, you don't turn a uh, a cruise liner in a second, right? I mean, your life doesn't, doesn't change overnight. So you need to use a bunch of different tools. Um, I mentioned I went to San Quentin and it was a, it's an infamous prison and it has California's death row. What I didn't tell you is it's also the, the Silicon Valley of prison reform. Um, uh, there are about 150 different nonprofit groups that send volunteers into San Quentin on a regular basis. Uh, it's the only prison like that in the world, as far as I know. It's definitely the only one in California, and and I believe the only one in the United States. And I know that because I've done a lot of work on criminal justice and criminal justice reform. While I was in prison, for example, I was the managing editor of the San Quentin News, which is a four-print newspaper done by inmates for inmates. Um, has a circulation of 35,000 print copies we send all over California. Um, by the way, I never disclosed I was an attorney in prison. I told them I was a startup techie guy and a business guy, and that's all I left it out. I didn't want to talk about law. But I had talent that was appreciated, and so they asked me to be the managing editor of this newspaper, and I did that. And so I've learned a lot about the criminal justice reform efforts and the prison system, national, local, state, um, local county jail systems and San Quentin's unique that way. So one of the, one example is I took a class on nonviolent communications, which we don't realize how many times we speak violence with our words. Um, and we, uh, we give other people ownership of our own emotions by doing that. And so how do we take responsibility? How do we take ownership? Um, so nonviolent communications and learning how to communicate in that way was important for me. And it takes a while to develop that skill. You need to go to a class regularly. You can't just read a book and think you'll understand how to do it. you got to practice it. Mm -hmm. um, the most important class that I did um, culminated in a, in a victim panel where we brought in uh, five different families that had lost somebody to a criminal. And they got to meet with our small group We'd started with eight inmates and we were down to four uh, uh, by the time uh, we met with the panel. And that was an 18 month process where you first learn to take responsibility for your crime and understand the consequences of your crime, not just to your victim, 
but to their families, to their community, to society in general. Um, but also you have to explore what trauma led you to that criminal activity. And then that same process of understanding what that trauma was and, and why you had it and why the defense mechanisms you developed. For example, many people shut off their emotions with trauma. They're trained to do that. How else could they put a gun to somebody's head and pull the trigger, right? If they hadn't cut off a part of who they are. So putting them, putting us back in touch with our authentic self, if you've ever studied Carl Jung as an example, um, was a big part of that process. And part of this group, this victim offender dialogue group that I participated in for 18 months. And the chance to sit with families that had lost someone to explain you understood the depth of their loss, to give them a chance to express it to you in all of its painful detail. Um, and to be able to sit with that, to sit with their pain, um, to be an enlightened witness to their pain. Uh, unfortunately, America is not very good at that. And so we've created yeah. multiple generations of victims that stay victims their whole life. And you want to help a victim become a survivor. You want to help a perpetrator become a survivor. The process is known as restorative justice. If you've heard that terminology before. Um, uh, restorative justice is totally misunderstood, however, by most people. They think it's about getting the criminal back into society. And that's a very small component of it. Restorative justice is about getting the community to survive their victimhood. Uh, uh, if you know anything about the stats, uh, African-American young men commit homicide at about eight times the average of an American male. Um, a lot of that is revenge killings. Uh, they've been insulted. Their pride, somebody in their family has been insulted. Um, revenge is what restorative justice is trying to short circuit. An amazing amount of crime is driven by revenge and blood debt. Uh, the military learned that in Iraq and Afghanistan, what blood debt can do. Um, I learned it yes. in prison. Um, and restorative justice is trying to short circuit that. Trust me, that's what Chicago needs right now. When you see what's going on there, I I did a podcast with three. I did a podcast with three cops called Three Cops Talk, where they're trying to restore the trust between the police and, and the community. Cause they realize without that, they can't do their jobs effectively. Yeah. Was that, uh, so, that so that's kind of, Oh, sorry. I was, was that experience, you know, speaking with the victims and hearing their stories, uh, it's gotta be one of the hardest things you've ever done. I can only ever. imagine, but uh, it sounds it like hard. that really, really transformed you too. That's a great way of putting it. Yes. Yes. I became a different person. Um, um, I, I think um, my transformation was powered by a, a unique force. Um, uh, people of faith often can believe God can empower them to change. Um, it wasn't God that empowered me. It wasn't the love for my family that empowered me to change. Um, it was murder that empowered me to change. 
You think you know what power is? Take a life if you want to know what power is. If you want to know what you are capable of, the horrible truth of it, take a life. Um, I knew that I had to do everything I could conceivably do to make sure I would never take risks like that again. I owed it to my victims, her family, my family, to make sure that would never happen again. Uh, that's what empowered me to change. And to be honest, the group of men that I did it with were all murderers as well. Um, and uh, I call it the circle. Uh, that's the, the, the metaphor I like to use. It has no corners. You can't hide. You can't get away from people. The circle is where you got to take off that armor you've put on your whole life to protect yourself and have some honest discussion and vulnerability. Unfortunately, that honest discussion isn't enough because you've got blind spots. You don't know why you do a lot of stuff. If you want to talk to a lot of people who are frustrated by how they keep coming back to uh, their addiction and other problems, it's because they can't see their blind spots. And so they're going to keep repeating those same mistakes until they can find out what it is. And that small group environment is a great way to find your blind spots because other people see it, <laughs> even if you don't. Yeah. Um, when often we surround ourselves with people who have similar blind spots or are too afraid themselves to like tell us the thing we need to hear, you know, you kind of, that's why it's important to, to build relationships with people who don't see eye to eye with you on certain things, yeah. because if nothing else, you check each other, you balance each other. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a challenge for everyone, not just addicts or anything, but uh, it's something to be very aware of that it's virtually impossible to figure it all out on your own because blind Absolutely. spots are real and we all have them and those are areas for growth and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it is, and you have to, to work on it. So, well, I, I wanted to um, first applaud you for a specific distinction that I caught. Um, a lot of people, when they do something that they regret, they call it an accident and you specified that it was a crime. So there's some ownership and some humbleness there. And I appreciate that. Um, one of the things I wanted to circle back to real quick, you said you had 27 jobs uh, since then. So uh, for dads who have made mistakes and, and have like a, a felony on their record, for example, um, what advice would you give them after being released? Um, <clears throat> like that would help them when they, when they get released out of the, the situation, what, what's the best way for them um, to, to get back on their feet through that, that tough time with, with that, that record on, on their hanging over their shoulders, so to speak. Sure. Sure. That's a, um, it's a challenge, uh, to be a contributing community member is the way I like to characterize it once again and not fall back into old habits. Um, uh, I've had 27 jobs. Uh, I feel like a lot of my, so my former community was built up, built upon my ability to, to mediate and network. And that it's like a, a tree. If you haven't watered it for seven years, it's dead. You can't think that watering it's going to bring it back to life. Uh, that, that life is over for me. So I've had to start over from the very beginning. And that usually means service jobs. Um, uh, being educated. I've, I've graded, uh, 
college business class papers for people. Um, I manage three different websites. Um, I do content moderation and creation for other websites uh, in the nonprofit criminal justice space. Um, uh, I, I think the thing I'm most proud of um, will go to something that was started by, by my ex, I'm going to call her. I don't want to call her my wife and I don't want to call her my baby mama or my children's mother. She's my ex is the way I take it. We're very big into co-parenting, by the way. Uh, anybody who's divorced, move heaven and earth to be a good co-parent. I've seen way too many, fan, too, way too many couples destroy their relationships with their children by using their children as weapons against the other party. No, be a co-parent. It just keeps the Suck cycle it going. Yep. yep. Suck it up and, and face it. And we've been able to do that very effectively. Um, my ex got remarried about a year ago. Um, and uh, the catering company that she had for her, her second marriage um, asked if my then 16 and 18-year-old children could work for them. And so my ex knew the struggles I was having financially uh, by having to, uh, I tend to work about six jobs at one time. Um, uh, I, I've helped draft uh, expert opinion letters for doctors and malpractice cases, uh, nonprofit grant applications, uh, a lot of stuff. But uh, so she said, hey, Wayne, why don't you do that too? And, and it wasn't two. I had to take that job at the catering company because my daughter was 16 and I sure as hell wasn't going to let her work in an adult environment without my supervision. Uh, she's my little baby. I don't care what you say. Um, and so that was uh, not this summer that just passed, but the summer before. And I worked at the catering company and um I've always, um, I, I believe in the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. You should be the best that you can be at whatever you are and life will take care of itself. Uh, a modern way of explaining that is it doesn't matter the cards you're dealt. It's how you play the hand, right? That's what you have control over. It's the process, right? Um, so I started working at this catering company and, and had the chance to work with both of my children because even though my children um, uh, come from an elite existence. Uh, you know, my son split his time from between the catering company and working at a hedge fund. Uh, my daughter spent this summer, um, at the San Francisco DA's office, as well as, um, at a member of the board of supervisors office in San Francisco, um, and catered cause they have to learn what money is and how difficult it is to earn. Are there going to be like so many of their peers that are just whiners and don't understand that they got luxury problems. Let's put it that way. And I don't want my kids to have those luxury problems, but the, at father's day this year, my, my children uh, took me to a great dim sum restaurant and um, I'd ask them as their present for me at father's day was, you know, what have you learned? What is it about me? You like, what have you learned uh, about me that, that, that shows you who I am? And my son said, um, 
you know, dad, I came back this second summer and worked the job and everybody loved you. Your coworkers, the managers, the owners, the chefs, everybody wants to work with you. Everybody trusts your opinion. Um, I now manage a, a number of, I'm working a gig tomorrow at, at a museum for a top end law firm that I would have applied to a few years ago, right? That I'm now the catering guy serving hors d'oeuvres and I'm going to be a captain. So I'm in charge of all the serving staff. So I've, I'm moving up the, the food chain um, at that company. But the fact that he realized that everybody loved me and that they trusted me and how, how he admired the diligence that I would lend a helping hand, even if it was outside the scope of my responsibilities to other people and make sure everybody could be the best they could be. You can't make a dad prouder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, my daughter is a senior in high school. She's the vice president of her high school. She goes to, you guys can't see it. She goes to choke Rosemary hall, which is, uh, a top boarding school. Um, in in connecticut it's where john f kennedy went to it's where ivanka trump went to the melons send their kids there uh, one of my son's good friends is from the mars family of mars candy i mean that kind of school she's the vice president she's the been the captain of the golf team there for two years the varsity golf team um and she uh let me meet her boyfriend <laughs> had him fly out from baltimore and i got to sit down and take them out to a lunch. And she trusted me enough um, to meet her boyfriend. Mm, and to want to awesome. talk about that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a great responsibility and a great experience. And I'm, uh, and he's a great kid. It's um, great. So can we rewind a little bit on, sure. you know, backstage, you had said that uh, your ex-wife um, was very good about, keeping you involved with your children, uh, even when you went to prison. So can you walk us through, you know, did they, were they able to come visit you relatively frequently? How did you maintain your relationship with them um, while you were in? And then what have you done since getting out to, uh, as in your own words, kind of, you know, restore the tapestry of your relationships together? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Prison is um, exists in a time lock past. Uh, we still have those big old pay phones that you used to put quarters in, in prison. Uh, if you have TV, it's broadcast TV. You, none of this on-demand video stuff. Um, because I was in a prison full of, of murderers, so most of these guys have been down 20, 30, 40 years. When I say a time lock past, these guys still use the same hairstyle they had when they went to prison. I'm talking, you know, mullets, you know, <laughs> jerry curls. I mean, all the stuff that, that they used to have, they're still have in prison. So you're in a time lock pass and you have very limited access. You can have a 15 minute phone call, for example, uh, that has to be a collect phone call. So somebody has to be willing to accept that call and you have to schedule that. Um, but it's much less valuable than you would think because there's a bank of four phones. I was living mainly in a dorm with 200 men, I had a bunkie. So there's a lower bunk and an upper bunk. Um, and there's four phones right in a row there. There's a big sign right in front of the phones. that says, please keep your hands out of your pants. Uh, if that gives you any idea what a lot of the phone calls are like, 
when people are on those phones. I'm trying to talk with my kids, right? Not hear about the love people want to have with each other. Um, and you're right next to each other. And, you know, we come from an elite culture where we've taught ourselves not to listen into other people's conversations. People in prison don't think like that. They see a lot more and hear a lot more than you would ever imagine. And so you have to be very careful about what you say uh, to your children. Uh, and that also goes through for the visiting room and visits are limited. Uh, I was lucky because even though we got divorced, um, my ex honored her commitment to bring the kids to visit me and uh, tried to do that as regularly as possible, probably averaged out to about once every six weeks uh, during the time I was in prison, but it was regular uh, until they went away to school. They both went to the same boarding school. Obviously that meant I didn't get to see them. Um, but uh, when they were around, I did. And she brought them. Um, there was an 18 month span where my son wouldn't come. Um, uh, it'll go to your, your issue of how did you stay in touch and how do you keep that tapestry alive? Um, uh, I felt my son had way too much estrogen in his life. Um, I know some of you guys have daughters. I've got a daughter too. When my firstborn was a, was a boy, he had a mother, a grandmother, a sister and a cat, all female. And the public school class that he was in was over two thirds female, female teachers. And so there were two male uh, 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 private schools in San Francisco for boys only. And I wrote letters to both of them. Uh, my son's in fifth grade. Here's his story. Here's where he's at. Here's my story. Do you guys accept transfer students for sixth grade? Um, one of those schools wrote back. Um, they also had a very intimate relationship with the preschool my kids had gone to, which was at the same church I'd gone to. And I was a very active member of my church. They put in a word for me. And so my son transferred to a boys school for fifth, sixth and our sixth, seventh and eighth grades for three years. But the first 18 months of that time, he didn't talk to me because his friends had found out his dad was uh, in prison. And they, as teen, as young boys, they used it against him. And he was mad. And he was hurt. And it was my fault. And he wouldn't come. So to entice him to get through that anger. And I got to tell you, honestly, I'm still angry at those parents because those kids weren't doing Google searches on me. That's something they heard from their parents. Um, in my belief. Um, and I don't blame those kids. That's what kids do. And my, trust me, going to that boys' school helped my son toughen up and be uh, able to choose to go to a boarding school uh, for his last four years of, of, of school before he went to college. And his sister followed him there because she saw his example and she wanted to have a similar challenge. I, I think one of the greatest fears I had before I went to prison was how can I keep up with my kids? They're too damn smart. Um, I was frightened about that. My kid would organize his toy dinosaurs in a timeline. Okay. His goal in life was to read all the Harry Potter books the most times so he could get in the Guinness book of world records. Um, Did he do it? So, so you have to find ways. <laughs> He read them over, he read them, I think, eight times before he got. That's a that. lot. And there's a lot of Harry Potter books. 
Um, yep. Um, how do you stay connected to your kids? You have to meet them where they are. Too many parents try to instruct all the time. It, it, don't tell them where they should be. Meet them where they are. So I would, I would use, so I went to the prison library and read all the damn Harry Potter books. I don't mind fantasy. I wasn't reading Harry Potter for me. I needed to have a common vocabulary and examples detailed enough to show I had read those books. So my son and I had something in common to talk about. I and he had that. to keep me, he had to keep me updated on his baseball career and on what the giants were doing. And I demanded that he do it. We still regularly debrief all the way down to single a with the giants organization. You know, we know all the players, everything that goes on. Um, no, I didn't play baseball in high school. No, I didn't love baseball for its sake. You better believe I learned to love baseball. My son thinks I love baseball as much as he does. Shoot, during COVID, when they weren't going to school, he got addicted to FIFA, um, which is a, a game on Xbox, right? It's, it's professional soccer. I had to learn all about professional soccer. I am now a diehard Tottenham Hotspur fan in the, in the Premier League, okay? Um, he's more a Chelsea fan, and we battle about that. Uh, by the way, those two teams played each other, and, and he's got bragging rights because Chelsea beat Tottenham uh, 4-1 to one this week. And I got oh, to live with that. I got to live with that. <laughs> I learned Premier League soccer and the rules of soccer and the difference between a penalty uh, and a foul and what offsides are because I had to meet my son where he was and use the vocabulary he was comfortable with. If I did have something I wanted to uh, show him, you know, I, I think as parents, you know, we know that people learn from books and they learn in school and you, you've, you've heard the old cliche, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Children learn by observation. First, we've forgotten that as adults, only observation. They don't have words to, to put to that observation. They don't have memories of it. They learn by observation and they learn it from their parents. Uh, that's the they're, only they're masters of observation too. Yes. They they're see always a lot watching. more than always yep. watching and always judging and always interpreting only at the level they're capable of understanding. Um, I've had a real challenge with my daughter since I've come home to, uh, to regain her trust. Um, I mean, uh, she was five when I came by my crime and I was the apple of her eye and everything. I was her dad, the dad you'd want to be the dad. We all are to five-year-olds. Um, and then when I went to prison at six, she had to accept the sobering reality that I was a criminal. And so, and I abandoned her. That's the way a six-year-old looks at it. She doesn't realize I had to serve sentence. That's the way I tried to explain it to her, that it was my duty as a citizen because of the crime I had committed. Um, uh, and that I needed that time to develop the tools I needed to develop to make sure I wouldn't commit that crime again. Rehabilitation is the term that's used. I needed that time. So I had to do it for multiple reasons, but she couldn't understand that. She just knew that I betrayed her and abandoned her. And so the defense mechanism a six-year-old develops because of that is she won't trust men. She's had a hard time with male coaches since then. 
She's had a hard time with male teachers since then. Um, and I've had to work very hard to earn her trust. Uh, 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 one example of that is uh, my daughter is a cat person. She's got a cat. Milky Way is the cat's name. And Milky Way may join us during this podcast. She's been hearing me talk for a while, so she might jump out here and talk. My daughter's away in high school. And so when she's gone, um, my daughter trusts me to take care of her cat when she's gone. So I am earning her trust back step by step. This is the most precious thing in her life. And she lets dad take care of it. And I send her a Snapchat literally every day. By the way, I don't, I've never used Snapchat before my daughter told me that's the way I had to let her know. And I send her a Snapchat virtually every day of her cat because I want her to know that her cat's happy and healthy and fine and that she should focus on her studies and being the vice president of the high school and being the captain of the golf team and not worry about her cat. But I also do it because I want to show her she can trust me and try to help her dismantle that defense mechanism yeah. of you can't trust men because that'll, yeah. that'll haunt her the rest of her life if she can't get rid of that. I love how focused you are on this and the examples you gave are very, very impressive. Thanks for sharing those. And it's so important too, because like you were mentioning a book, uh, Carl Jung, obviously uh, the authentic self, you know, one of the things that he says uh, in the book is that finding our truest selves uh, means that first we have to become conscious of the beliefs that we created out of what have happened to us. And obviously what's happened to you is pretty substantial. And there's a lot of, uh, I'm sure guilt, shame, remorse, those kinds of things. And you haven't regained trust. So what are, um, what are the words redemption and forgiveness? What do they mean to you? And, and how have you tried to earn those things? Um, at its core, they're about accepting responsibility. Um, I, I believe all, all crime, uh, all sin, for that matter, is a form of selfishness. Um, you could alcoholism is a form of selfishness to your own body you are so selfish that you are willing to destroy your own body with drugs fentanyl is the crisis America is going through now that's a form of selfishness so how do you expect responsibility for not only what you've done but what you're capable of and then how do you use that capability for the good of society. Um, that That's the essence of how I would characterize the definition of those terms. Accept responsibility and develop the tools to be a responsible contributing member um, at every in every facet of your life, whether it's your family, your friends, your community, your church, um, uh, your your country, your society, your your world. How do you how do you contribute? How do you find ways to be of service? Because in essence, that's the only way I can live with myself is being of service in as many ways as I can find. I'm uh, Since I got out, I've been on the board of a nonprofit called Man to Man, um, which was created to teach fatherhood values to inner city kids, which is a euphemism for black teenagers and black fathers. 
close to 75% of black children are born out of wedlock in the United States. Most of them raised in a fatherless household. Um, and it, you, so these men need the tools to be fathers. They don't have them. They didn't learn them at home. And so this nonprofit uh, teaches in San Quentin uh, these fatherhood principles. Also, in many cases, as a commission of what's called probation for people who are outside as a condition of their probation, they have to take a class on uh, nonviolence because many of them abuse uh, their children and their spouses physically. And so they have to take a course. And so we teach courses uh, to these men in county jails, as well as the men who are out and awaiting trial or out in probation on how to develop the tools that they need for nonviolent communication, for accepting responsibility for their own actions and how to be a responsible father. Uh, that's one way for me on the redemption side is supporting that group. And because uh, uh, California is about 6% African-American, I got to be honest about this stuff. Uh, it, it, it skates close to stuff people aren't comfortable talking about. And I apologize if it makes you uncomfortable. California is 6% African-American. It's about 36 to 38% of the prison population is African-American. And it's not just because the police are looking at them all the time. There's a real problem in this community. And fatherlessness seems to be the, the common factor. Consistently, fatherlessness. Uh, about crime, about dropping out of school, about teenage pregnancy, boys and girls. Uh, it just, there's a myriad of these causes that, that the, the wellspring or the source of these problems is not having a father in the home. And, and they need to be good fathers, not just fathers. Yep. So how can we deal with that? I can't lead that group. I'm a white man. Uh, you know, Stuart's in charge of, of man to man. Stuart's the one uh, as a, an African-American man, as a, uh, a former Marine Corps sergeant, um, as a volunteer in San Quentin, as a, as a minister who runs that group and is able to communicate with these men. I can be in the back on the board. I can help him raise money. I can get him on podcasts. And if you guys want to talk to Stuart, I'd highly recommend it. And the work he's done with man to man is yeah, pivotal love to, hear it. to helping our society. Um, so that's, that's the way I look at it. Brandon, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, so this is kind of an open-ended question. It might take you a second to, to think about it, but I think with your events and what's happened to you in your life, it's, it's important to ask. So mm. the question is, what is your purpose in life? Hmm. Hmm. Um, I um I find that at this stage of my life, um, being of service is the way I characterize it. And my guilty pleasure is learning um, uh, because I find that I can be of better and more service with the more skills and tools I'm able to develop. Um, in the vernacular of the startup world, I don't care what your technology is. Can you scale that technology? 
to have real impact. And so I look at things that are scalable. Um, I don't want Stuart to teach a class. I want him to develop a coursework that we can put on uh, an iPad that a prison might have so that they can do this course remotely or do this course on their own. I want to scale it. Um, and I, a lot of the stuff I work on is how do we scale a good idea? Too many of them die uh, an early death because they're not scalable. Um, they're not scalable often because the founder is so caught up in what they've created. They won't let go of it, to be honest, but that's another story. Um, so I work with a lot of people on how do you scale a good idea? Um, I've been the web manager of the San Quentin News since I got out. And so I've worked very hard for the online content to be as important and to be honest, read much more often than the paper version. You know, we have 15 to 19,000 page views uh, a month uh, versus the 35,000 print copies we put out. Um, and so I work hard to make that a better newspaper because I think it's a great forum for people to hear from the men themselves, the work they're doing to transform themselves, to be worthy, to come back as contributing members to society. So people aren't always afraid of them. They can trust them to come back. They need to see those stories and they needs to motivate the other men in prison that there's a path forward. I think many people, uh, that's the real truth. They know what they should do. Come on. Uh, we all do. We just don't understand why we can't do it. That blind spot process and the tools, the psychic tools we need to work on that are, are um, they're not intuitive. They take real work to develop them and to deploy them and to use them. And I don't think we're, as a society, very good at teaching those. Faith um, is a wonderful tool for that, but we've become a much more secular society, at least the circles that I live in, especially in the Bay Area here in San Francisco. Um, I, uh, and so that guilty pleasure has led me to do a lot of reading and a lot of... My son got me into podcasts. So the reason I'm on your show is... Uh, I'd ask him, you know, what he did with the digital media stuff. And he says, I just watch YouTube videos. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, and uh, I've learned to appreciate YouTube videos. Um, but the best way cool. for me to learn something is I have to read at least one book by an author because these concepts are usually, I'm not smart enough to absorb and deploy these concepts from a podcast or, uh, or an article. I, I got to read a lot more than that that to understand a concept to really learn it i think most people today have a they have the appearance of learning because they know facts but they're worse than somebody who doesn't know anything because they don't know what those facts really mean they, don't, they haven't learned anything they don't have any wisdom they just have facts that they spew out um they're more dangerous than the uneducated in, in my estimation so yep. i work very hard to educate myself effectively um which takes a lot of time in my case. And, and I think, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have 27 jobs since I've been back because it gives me a lot of free time to focus on, on other things that are important to me, um, both to develop the psychic tools I need to be a better person and to help my children become adults. Um, so many things in our society, I'll give you a characterization. You think you're looking at the world and you're not you're looking at a mirror the world's the inverse of what you think it is 
How many parents try to keep their children safe? Worst thing they could do for them. They need brave kids, not safe kids. They need kids who know how to face challenges. You need a kid to fall down and scrape their knee. Absolutely, you have to help them take a few minutes to talk about it and to calm down and to put a bandaid on it and tell them you love them and to sit with that pain when they go through it. How many kids today have never even scraped a knee, never gone camping for heaven's sakes? Our society looks at the world backward. Um, uh, Restorative justice, an example of that is what I talked about with restorative justice. When I told you that it's for the victims, that isn't what restorative justice teaches. That's what I believe. Restorative justice is teaching about getting that person to accept responsibility for their crime. And that isn't what it's about. Life isn't about happiness. Your natural state is fear. Happiness is what is what you have to learn to avoid fear. And we go chasing this happiness in wrong ways, right? We, we chase transcendental momentary happiness versus true um, uh, accomplishment right? In a sense, you know, you have to have purpose in life. And that means you have to carry a burden. Sisyphus is a real reason. You need to be able to lug that rock up. You should enjoy it. Um, um, having So a purpose-driven life is, you know, these cliches we've heard as terms are, are the essence of it. But I think very often they're not, they're seen as a, a mirror image of what they really are. And, and that's what I work on. Um, yes, the, the authentic self highly recommend you guys read the the um the drama of a gifted child uh by alice miller um alice miller was a psychologist and uh from switzerland so these books had to be translated into english seminal work on discovering the authentic self and uh facing childhood trauma and what what every child goes through by the way it's just there are different levels of trauma some children may be physically abused or raped. Other children may simply be yelled at or not get attention from their parents. It's still trauma. And so, and trauma that we've been trained by our society not to face and to shut off. And so being able to open that door and face that trauma and deal with it that you experienced as a child. Alice Miller is brilliant. One of my favorite people. Um, and the drama of the gifted child is, is the title of her book. And I'd highly recommend, uh, that, that you read that. I, uh, a name that most people, a name that most people know. Good, good. Trust me. You'll read everything she writes once you read that book. She's an arrogant asshole. My God, but I love that woman. Um, uh, one name you've probably heard a lot of that I think is, misunderstood is Jordan Peterson. Um, I think any father, if they want a, a starter book, should read his 12 rules for life. Um, I think any educated man that wants to understand the world should read Maps of Meaning, his seminal work that came out in the 90s. I found out about Jordan, Jordan Peterson in prison. I read Maps of Meaning. I didn't even know he was a YouTube star until after I got out. Um but I went to see him when he came to San Francisco and I wore a suit and I paid the money to take it a picture taken with him. Cause I'm very grateful to Jordan Peterson and the work that he's done, especially for fathers and for men and a purpose-driven life. Um, and even though half of America may hate him, I deeply admire that man. And I think he's done a yep. lot of good work. 
I don't know how you can hate him. I read Maps of Meaning about a decade ago, and it literally changed the trajectory of my life. Yes, uh, and then 12 yes. Rules for life. Spirits. <laughs> like twelve rules for life, and then twelve more rules. Like, wow. Like C.S. Lewis and Jordan Peterson are the two titans in my my college years for sure. Man, I like it. Yeah. I like it. Good. Great. I'll I'll give you one that gave me hope for the future. Jordan okay. has a good. He's a, kind of like a prophet. He tells you what you should do. But yeah. it doesn't give you a lot of hope for the future in a lot of ways, right? America's on in trouble. Have you ever read David Deutsch? He is an Oxford professor out of England. Uh, there's a book called The Beginning of Infinity. And after our, when we do a debrief after this, I'll send you guys an email with the links. But David Deutsch, The Beginning of Infinity. He came up with a concept known as constructor theory. Um, uh, he's a follower of Karl Popper. If you've done any philosophy, you might have heard of Karl Popper. Mm -hmm. um, uh, David Deutsch gave me hope for the future because he's about the creation and deployment of useful knowledge. And useful knowledge is what matters. And as humans, we're universal explainers. We can create useful knowledge. And he's about fallibilism. You know, uh, nothing's perfect. There's always a mistake. You can always find a better, clearer answer. But because he believes in useful knowledge, he can celebrate Newton, even if, if uh, Albert Einstein's concepts transcended and replaced many of the things we learned from Newton, because at his time, it was useful knowledge. And so the key is, what is useful knowledge and how do we deploy it effectively? And then we should always be seeking to make it better and that we don't learn from example or experiment. That's just a way of proving useful knowledge. Useful knowledge comes from inspiration and imagination. You have to think of the idea and then test it first. Science is not science. Science is a methodology for testing yep. ideas. Yep. People I'll, misconstrue uh, it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the script and share a book with you. My, my stepbrother actually wrote a very, very extensive book on, uh, on how science as we know it is essentially uh, kind of a modern phenomenon uh created not actually by scientists as we refer to them but by historians so I'll, I'll i'll share the book with you afterwards it's uh yeah please please i love it's a really like long that. title i don't want to misquote it on on <laughs> on the episode but well the, the conceptual frames of the, the of the enlightenment right it. and you'll, you'll and the romanticists it. and all this other stuff these frameworks um so i'm going to take you guys back uh, i burned down my psychic delusion house completely so when I say I went back, I went back. Uh, I went pre-Socratic, okay? I went before Socrates, Plato, and, and Aristotle in the philosophies that I was reading. Um, uh, a great book to start you off is called Preface to Plato, by the way, by a guy named Havel. I think it's Eric Havel, uh, Preface to Plato. It's so old, you can't find it digitally, right? It's one of those books. But he explained the transition from a mythic oral culture into a written culture that was created at the time and it was memorialized in the writings of Plato about Socrates and then of Aristotle about his time as Plato, right? They were three generations worth. Great. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll definitely look at it. I'll definitely read it. Um, so so pre-Socratic so what I've studied is the cultural zeitgeist change 
from mythology to written. And then the change from writing to print. If you've ever read Marshall McLuhan, if you haven't, you can't understand the modern world if you haven't read Marshall McLuhan. Uh, the Gutenberg Galaxy was a book he wrote. I found it in San Quentin State Prison. I'd never read him. I found him in a footnote. And because I'm a, I love footnotes, I, I looked it up and I found the Gutenberg Galaxy. Uh, I was the first person to check it out of prison. And it was written in 1962. Um, so I can't say that many of my peers in prison were reading stuff like that. But it changed my world. It completely, utterly changed my view of the world. The recognition that we live in what's called linear sequential thought mindset. Um, uh, we like the instructions and we follow them step by step, right? And the digital world, which he saw the birth of and called the electronic world, but the digital world operates as a unified field. It operates as a globe, not a line. And the conflict we're experiencing right now is uh, we're trying to transition from our linear sequential culture, which is reactive, right? We respond to problems into a unified field where everybody can work on the same thing at the same time. You don't have to do it step by step. Um, where information has become limitless, frictionless, and free. Where you used to have to have an expert to find a needle in a haystack. And now technology gives you a needle stack. And any asshole can pull a needle out and say, look, here, I got the needle, right? I got the answer. And so we have to learn a new way of critical thinking, a new way of thinking than we had in the past. And Marshall McLuhan explains that in brilliant detail and insightful understanding of linear sequential thought. As a tip, I you have to have embody this type of learning to switch from linear sequential thought to a unified field. All of the massive online multiplier Online games are unified field games. Uh, any number of people can play it at the same time and come in at any stage, right? They don't have to start at the beginning and work their way through. Um, uh, Uber operates in a unified field format. If you've ever had multiple, multiple stops on an Uber ride, they always ask you to put in your end stop first. And most of us, because we live in linear sequential thought, we put in the stops in the order we think Uber should use. And it asks us not to do that. It says, set, set the field first and then put the stops that are inside that function, not outside of it. So put in your last yeah. stop first and then put in your stops in between. And that's not the way we think. So you have to learn to think in a new way. If you guys haven't played Sudoku, I play it daily. Because oh, yeah. Sudoku teaches your mind to operate as a unified field because it teaches you to look at rows and columns and squares and big squares and positive and negative. So it, it teaches your mind to think yeah. in a unified field format, to take advantage of the unified field functionality that our digital realm gives us. And most of us can't take advantage of it because our mind has been trained in linear sequential thought because of how we read, to be honest. Literature helps us in a lot of ways, but also hinders us and limits us to take advantage, full advantage of these new technologies. I love Sudoku. And it, as far as books are concerned, it's all principle until it's application, right? So that's the application is definitely the, the, the critical key component there. I am so curious, based off all, all these books, you got, you got super passionate pretty quick about it. Uh, how many books did you read in prison and how many have you read since? 
I I have um, four notebooks full of my notes of the books I read in prison. I, I would try to limit my notes to about one page because I wanted to get to the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I was a voracious reader in prison. Um, I mentioned I was a proud man and how that led to my downfall. Um, uh, I also had to take care of myself in prison, so I wouldn't let anybody send me money in prison. I had to work. Uh, uh, I had many jobs in prison. My first job was an electrician. I worked at a furniture factory um, as a as a tutor at the San Quentin News as the managing editor. A lot of different jobs. But when my friends on the outside wanted to help me or, or give me something, they'd offer to put money on my books because that's the best way you can survive in prison. Rich guys in prison, uh, they tend to fall into just a couple categories. Um, one I call the ATM machine, where they become the ATM machine. So they give gifts to everybody and everybody lines up. So a lot of guys would have a lot of money on their books so they could go to the commissary once a month and buy things for other people. That's how they would keep themselves safe. And I was too proud to do that. I would rather earn my 18 cents an hour and spend that, those meager earnings on what I wanted. I wasn't going to give anybody anything in prison. Um, I found a different way to survive there. Uh, but to, to go back uh, to the, the concept, um, which I've totally lost. Sorry, Brandon. Um, that's okay. I was just wondering how many books you've read in, in prison. Oh, books. In that's there. what I was. So, so that was what I, so what I would tell my friends to do is I say, send me a book, right? Send me a book. What do you find? And it, sometimes I'd ask them cause I'd read, I'd find footnotes and articles or books that I like. I said, could you send me this book? You know? And sometimes they'd have something that they'd send me maps of meaning. For example, a friend sent me, um, uh, and you have to read that at least two or three times to understand it. Um, uh, at least I did. Have you guys ever heard of thinking fast and slow? Um, Thinking Fast and Slow was by Daniel Kahneman and um, Traversky, two guys. They won the Nobel Prize based on the research they did for this book. Changed my worldview of how humans think. Um, and it's called, it does a two-track mind. There's the the fast and the slow. One's instinctual and one's rational thought and how those interact with each other and how they help us make decisions. Just brilliant book. That's the kind of, so I'd, I would get these kind of books that you'd have to read two or three times right. and read the footnotes. If you, I'm not smart enough to gain it. I, I needed all, all that to understand it. Right. And so I would read books. I read voraciously. Um, I don't, I don't keep track of them. Um, I probably have, I, I tend to have five or six different books at the same time because I read different books at different paces um, and for different reasons. Uh, I, I took, uh, I read it. Both my kids are taking sociology this year. And so I, I got a book from a professor on sociology and learned about sociology. I, I don't remember taking it in school, but I wanted yeah. to know the vocabulary they were developing, um, and the environment they were living in. Right. Uh, and so I got a book on so- sociology. So I, I tend to read, um, really deep thought books and philosophy books and big books. Um, and, you know, some entertainment, but but not a lot. A lot of current event stuff. Uh, Francis Fukuyama explained how political systems and political decay work. Uh, if you want to understand what's going on with 
our our global civilization and the governments and how they operate. His concepts of political systems and political decay will blow your mind. Brilliant Stanford professor, amazing stuff. Um, Robert Sapolsky is another Stanford professor, wrote a book called Behave, which explains the neurological basis for our emotions and our actions. So it helps you understand how, how testosterone works, how dopamine works, um, and what they really are. For example, testosterone is not a violence uh, hormone. What it does is it, it takes your predispositions and magnifies them is what it does. And so it explains how testosterone works, explains how these different uh, neurotransmitters are impacted and how, they, how the hormones and proteins affect us as human beings. Uh, seminal work, at least 800 pages, explains how to deal with anxiety in great depth, which is something I've dealt with a lot in my life. Um, so yeah, I read a lot, but I, I tend to find, I look for people who are heretics. Um, I, I like to find people who think in a different way. Yeah. Um, uh, I celebrate the advent of AI that's coming. If you haven't read Cass Sunstein, he wrote a book called noise. Um, it's a longer title, but noise is the first word. And Cass Sunstein's book on noise, I think, is is a template for how to to deploy AI safely and effectively, and explains the potential that AI will bring to make our world an infinitely better place than it is right now. Um, and we won't all get turned into paper clips. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Um, we'll see. Said the Zen master. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, at least that's what I believe. So, so yeah, I read yeah. a lot of stuff uh, across the spectrum, philosophical, societal, technological. You know, how's our world changing? I, I want to understand that. Um, you know, I'm very curious about these large language models like BARD and ChatGPT to come out. And I'm really trying to unlock the potential of them. But coming at it from a unified field perspective, not a linear sequential thought perspective. And what that means is it's all about the prompt not yep. the database. And the, the database looks for pattern recognition and it will serve up to you the things that are that the deepest patterns, the most recognized patterns. And so you have to be very sophisticated in your prompt if you want to get a good answer. Right. And it's the same thing with people, like the AI art. It's exactly the specifics of the prompt is 100% everything. how the image everything. will end up looking. So, That's right. Our society has switched from knowing the answer to how do you ask the question? And we exactly. don't understand that. Yeah, it's interesting. We have to learn to ask the question. And and because, and so another way to characterize some of these things, guys, big data and all of the information we have is analogous to a digital telescope. So it shows us the sky. It shows us how everything works on the macro level. And social media and the, and the smartphone are a social microscope. So they give us access to the individual at a very intimate level. And our reactive mindset doesn't, the potential of these technologies is to become proactive. Uh, COVID never had to be as bad as it was um, if we had been proactive instead of reactive. Right. If we had used the technologies of big data. You're, you're going to get me spun up on a whole different topic now. We're going to have to show that one. <laughs> and and deployed them, deployed them yeah. with the microscope of, you know, the iPhone or smartphone phone and, and social media effectively. Uh, I, I actually joined a nonprofit 
started by a complexity theory professor at MIT when we were trying to get in the trenches early with COVID and deal with COVID. Some of my most popular writings in uh, on Medium are about the early days of COVID and, and, and broke my heart um, how we couldn't stop being reactive mm-hmm. and had so many people suffer. Yep. Both on the front end by not dealing with COVID early and on the back end where we kept restrictions in place for infinitely long periods. And, yep. you know, as adults, it didn't harm us. I, I do a lot of work with, uh, what's yeah, we're called seeing the, the fallout now with children. Yeah. I mean, the stats, yeah, it's the children, 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 learning disabilities children. And, and other, uh, you know, other disorders are exponentially through the roof. Um, and the achievement so, yeah. gap is widened from about yeah, a year and a half. It's really after two years. We're, solely we're just, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately. Um, right. and so, you know, I guess my only takeaway from all that is I just hope parents across the board are significantly more aware of no one's coming to save you, be a part of your own rescue, ensure that well, you put systems in place for your children, because if you rely on other people, we saw how that went. So, yeah, they're yeah. facing different risks than we did. Right? Yep. And, and so you have to have different tools to help them face right. those risks. The main one as a parent is communication. Uh, Alice Miller uh, deployed a concept called the enlightened witness. She was a professional psychologist, saw patients for a very long time before she really got into her writing career. Um, And in theory, that's what, uh, if you have mental health counseling, it should be an enlightened witness because nobody can point out your blind spot to you, even if they know it, you have to discover it. They have to be a witness to that process. Yeah. And, and so I think my biggest role as a father is to be an enlightened witness. I didn't have to play FIFA with my son on Xbox during COVID when kids were going crazy. I had to be his front row is the way I like to, mm. to truncate that concept. I'm your yeah. front row. I will always I like cheer you on. I will always want to be there um, and support what you want to do. Because I think way too many parents try to force their kids to either avoid the mistakes they made or do the things they wish they had. And I want my kids to be self-expressed and I work very hard that right. they find a way to do that. Um, yeah. With it, That's but make an informed decision in your self-expression. To, yeah. You know, don't get me wrong, but. Yep. But th- so Wayne. That's kind uh, of a fi- philosophy I have. Yeah. I like it. Th- thanks for sharing. Um, I guess final question for you. It's kind of one we, we ask a similar version to pretty much everyone is, uh, you know, it's just a, a core memory or, a, you know, a real, uh, something that really jumps out at you when you think about just one of the best times of being a dad with your kids and, you know, just want to share what that is with us. Um, yeah, uh, I read, listened to some of your podcasts, as I said, so I knew this question was coming. So I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, hopefully it won't last too long, but as I think I told you, I'm a jazz player, not an orchestra player. So if you need to, you know, wave me off the stage, go ahead. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about astrophysics, um, and how it helped me mend my relationship with my daughter. Um, let's hear it. So, uh, uh, I mentioned my kids were, I was scared because my kids were really smart and they, they've proven that, you know, they, they score above the 99th percentile, you know, they're straight A students. Uh, you get what I'm saying. They're smart. And I'm, I wanted that. I wanted my kids to be smart. 
So my daughter was doing a school project on, um, on space and what can survive in the vacuum of space. Um, and as a parent who tried to stay active in her life, she had told me about this. So I did some research on it and was trying to, to be helpful with the stuff that meet her where she is. This is what she's interested in. She named her cat Milky Way for heaven's sakes. Right. I mean, this is something that she was fascinated by. And so I, um, I took a risk. Um, and I asked for help, uh, as fathers ask for help. Don't be so proud. Don't be so ashamed that you don't want to admit your weakness. Ask for help. Um, I wrote a letter to a famous astrophysicist and asked, you know, what are some tools that I could use as a father to help my children stay vested in STEM research, especially my daughter, because we know that's a real challenge for a lot of girls, right? How can I help him do that? Now, his name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you've heard of him before, he's, uh, he's on TV all the time, you know, runs the Natural History Museum in New York. He's great, right? So I wrote a letter to Neil deGrasse Tyson asking for his help. And he wrote back. And he gave me some suggestions. And we started a correspondence. And he put my letter in one of his books called Letters to an Astrophysicist. Not very original. But he put it in his book. And he told me that he would love to meet me and my daughter in person. And so when he was on his book tour and came to San Francisco, it's less than a year after I was out of prison, right? I was still having a lot of problems with my daughter and connecting with her. My son and I were back on track. We were talking Giants baseball every day. We were fine. The day he came home from school, he took, it was raining in San Francisco. He took me out to show me the five different pitches he has on a rainy day, right? Because he wanted to show me his baseball talents. And so I was, that was good. My daughter was more of a challenge. And so uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said he would, he would like to meet us. And so he said he was coming to San Francisco, wanted us to come meet him in the green room. So my daughter and I went backstage an hour before his show. Uh, he had sold out a 1,500-seat auditorium in San Francisco uh, on his book tour. And we were the only people in his green room with him. And he spent an hour talking to my daughter one-on-one -on -one about her life and what her interests were and about the stuff that she likes about space and, and where she was at. And um, as, our, as the time was drawing near the end, he said, hey, you know, we've had a great talk here. Would you know, if you parents don't mind, I mean, it, you know, do you want to come up on stage? And we'll, we'll talk about, you know, both your dad's letter, because that's his book, but also about your interest in, in astrophysics and space and science. And my daughter said yes. And so she had a four minute conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's all there's videos of this. It's easy to find um, of her on stage talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And the reason I say that's why I'm proud as a father is because this was a singular father event. It wasn't something that her parents both did, right? It was something that her dad did that showed he loved her. He went out of his comfort zone. He wrote a letter to a famous person. This famous person respects his, her dad enough that he wants to meet her dad and meet her. And so she could recognize that I wasn't just an ex-con and a broken man that I got out of prison who may still have, be doing 27 jobs, but has a brain and somebody who, who aspires to more and aspires to excellence and asks for help and got help. So I think for me, that's one of the proudest experiences I've had uh, only because I had the humility to ask for help. And that's what I would leave as a last word to everybody. 
have the courage to ask for help. Yep. Um, you never know where it'll come from. And that's super uh, cool. That was invaluable, invaluable for me to reestablish and weave back together the tapestry of our relationship with my daughter. That's so awesome. And it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just a, a proud moment for you. It's something that she's going to remember for the rest of her life too, right? right. So it's, uh, yeah, those those are the moments we all live for. Just um, what an amazing story. That's so awesome. And I hope that, uh, you know, it, it continues to be a catalyst for you to have deeper and, and further restoration with her. And um, Wayne, I just want to thank you uh, just man to man for coming up and uh, sharing your story honestly and openly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's very difficult, very painful, um, you know. But I think that this your story um, is going to help a lot of people because there's so much to relate in the story of, you know, difficulty and loss and um, having to make amends and restoration. And uh, it's just beautiful. So thank you for sharing. Um, I want to leave you with a little quote too, because when when Brandon asked you, you know, what's your purpose, and you said service, mm-hmm. serving people. Um, and I, this is a little serendipitous because I just heard this quote tonight in a meeting prior to us recording this. Um, it's from Garrett Unklebach, who's a former Navy SEAL. He said, if you want to live a great life, make it about other people. If you want to live a terrible life, make it all about yourself. So you, without hesitation, said that your purpose is serving others. And so I think that that is just the most powerful response, um, given everything you've been through. And it's such a great example to, um, and then as well, the intentionality with your kids and, you know, learning what interests them and, and getting involved in it. So you have something to connect with them on and restore a relationship is just um, something that all fathers can do and should do. So thank you so much. Um, I know you said you don't really have a whole lot to plug, but you do write a lot. You, you're on Medium. That's correct. And I think you said LinkedIn as well. People can look you up and, and find a lot of your stuff. So thank you, Wayne. Thank you for your time. And I'll just, any closing thoughts, feel free. Yeah. Thanks, George. Well, my closing thoughts would be a pitch. Uh, Yes, you can find me on Medium. I've got, it's all free to the public, even though it's behind a paywall. I've made it all open for everybody to read. And a lot of these ideas and concepts, uh, I discuss a lot of the authors. Uh, I just talk about geniuses and heretics quite a bit as well. Um, And so you can find that if you're curious about it. A lot about my own journey about addiction and recovery and uh, parenthood, fatherhood as well. But I'd also ask people to look for sanquintonnews.com. It's a wonderful newspaper. It's about, uh, averages about 24 pages, 40 to 60 articles a month um, about different efforts at restorative justice and redemption and rehabilitation um, that are active uh, across the world, not just at San Quentin. And I'll give you some idea of what's actually possible with our criminal justice system. And don't get me wrong, it's not happening now. Um, San Quentin's unique. It it is like the Silicon Valley of prison reform. It's got a lot of great new ideas and the San Quentin News talks about them. And so if you're curious about that or you want to know how you could help, read the articles in the San Quentin News. And again, it's sanquentinnews.com, like the old style. Um, easy to find. All right. Well, Wayne, again, thank you so much. Uh, I really loved speaking with you and and learning from your story. And, uh, I hope this is going to help a lot of men out there to, uh, be inspired and, and 
have the courage to stand up and, and own their faults and seek restoration in their own lives. So with that said, dads, enough talk. Let's get climbing the mountain. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.